Six months ago, Donald Trump stopped being president of the United States. Today, we'll take a look at the Biden administration, the Biden White House, Biden's policies, and compare them to Donald Trump's. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on the Socialist Program. Today is Wednesday. Normally, The Real Story appears on Thursday, but we have breaking news today. So we'll run the show Capitalism in Crisis with Professor Richard Wolff on Thursday rather than Wednesday. I'm joined today by Lee Camp. He's a writer, comedian, activist, journalist, and the host of the television show Redacted Tonight, which you can see on RT America. Lee is also an organizer and editor of a new media site. Be sure to check it out at radindymedia.com. That's radindymedia.com. Lee's latest book is called Bullet Points and Punchlines, the most important commentary ever written on the epic American tragic comedy. And you can find it and more of his work at leecamp.com. Lee Camp, welcome back to The Socialist Program. Thanks. It's an honor to be on my second favorite podcast, second to mine. Well, mine too. Thank you, Lee, for joining. Let's talk about Biden. I mean, Joe Biden was always, well, sometimes he's described as a liberal, but he was never a liberal inside the Democratic Party. In fact, when he became a member of the U.S. Senate representing the state of Delaware, he immediately became an ally a personal friend and ally of Strom Thurmond, who, of course, was notorious for having split the Democratic Party in 1948 when Harry Truman dared to introduce legislation to desegregate the U.S. armed forces. This is three years after the defeat of Nazism. Yes, American military forces were still completely and legally enforced segregated. And so Strom Thurmond broke away from the Democratic Party formed the Dixiecrats, almost cost Harry Truman the election, and he remained an arch-racist and segregationist. And when Biden came into the Senate, he was like, that's going to be my pal. And as a matter of fact, when Strom Thurmond died in 2003, the late and unlamented Strom Thurmond died in 2003, it was none other than Joe Biden who performed the eulogy. Again, We didn't have many expectations. But then when Joe Biden became president, a lot of people were surprised. They were like, wow, he's a little bit like FDR, very far reaching economic reform packages. Anyway, Lee, let's talk about Biden six months in. He's obviously focused more on domestic rather than foreign policy, but we want to talk about both. Anyway, big picture, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, he's 
been this way <laughs> for, for decades. There hasn't been a lot of shift, honestly. I mean, he wanted to put his name on every pro-policing bill, even as the police were brutalizing people around America. He helped write the crime bill. He's bragged about writing the Patriot Act. And none of those things have really changed. He hasn't stepped back and said, you know, man, I got to undo all of this horror show that I've helped create across America, the largest prison state in the world. You know, at no point has he said he's working to undo any of that. So I don't really see a shift in who he was then and who he is now. Lee, let's turn to another really, really important issue. Uh, Cory Bush was the only member of Congress, apparently, who did not go on vacation last Friday when the moratorium on evictions expired, which was well known to the Biden administration and to Congress after the Supreme Court's narrow five to four decision last month that the moratorium using the CDC authority on the pretext of a public health crisis could be extended just one more month. And so as a consequence, 6.3 million families were going to be evicted. And they all went on vacation. But Cori Bush, who herself was homeless before she was a member of Congress, she had two kids. They were living in a car. She represents Ferguson, Missouri. She was part of the movement, the rebellion, the resistance after the killing of Mike Brown in Ferguson. She, by herself, decided to light a single candle, so to speak, rather than curse the darkness. And she started this protest, this sit-in, at the Capitol building, demanding that Biden and Congress take action. You were down there. You saw hundreds of people, but it was still pretty small. But she was there and she was determined to stay. I went down on Sunday and Reverend Barber, Reverend Liz Theo Harris from the Poor People's Campaign were there. Others came. The next day, more members of Congress started to come back and speak. Bernie Sanders, the Reverend Jesse Jackson came. And I also know that housing groups around the country were starting to spring into action in response to her very courageous stance, I would say. We didn't know really whether this thing would fizzle out or not, but I'm looking right now. I mean, we're recording this show at 6.20 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon, August 3rd. Here's the headline. Biden administration, CDC, prepare new action to limit housing evictions. The move comes after congressional Democrats complain that the White House allowed a CDC eviction moratorium to lapse. Well, they weren't complaining. Very few of them were actually complaining. She was actually taking action. But I want to read a couple of sentences and get your thoughts. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is planning to announce a new action to limit housing evictions moving swiftly after intense pressure. The CDC's planned move is said to come after several days of intense pressure from Democrats and others who complained that the Biden administration's decision to let a previous CDC moratorium lapse at the end of July was wrong. Lee Camp, again, if she had not taken this action, Cori Bush, as uphill of a battle as it might have seemed, if she had not done something, I don't think we would be seeing this. 
Yeah, probably not. And I know that some people think saying anything positive ever done by someone who ran under the Democrat label means that you support everything the Democrats have done, which is not true. And you don't even need to support every stance that Cori Bush has. I think that in this moment, I think she was very genuine. This is a woman who was homeless at a time, as you mentioned. And you know, I don't think she was there just as a form of political theater. I think she really thought and felt she could create change by doing this and did it. I do think that others there were part of a political theater. They realized that they would look bad to be left out of this. So then you have certain Congress people running down there to show their face and say, oh, I'm a part of it. I mean, even Chuck Schumer at one point showed up which is hilarious because he is one of the most powerful people in Congress. So if anyone could have an impact on what Congress is doing, it's Chuck Schumer. So you did have these people running down there to show their face and say, oh, we're with you as you protest us, which is hilarious uh, on that front. But so to talk about it a little more broadly, I think this is important. This has happened that the moratorium, I think it will supposedly impact the extension, will impact a large percentage of the country for the next 60 days. But as I was saying, when this thing started, the demands need to be expanded and they still do, although I guess it's probably ending now. But demands need to be for housing for all. They need to be for an ongoing eviction moratorium throughout at the least the end of the pandemic, which won't be done for many months. And I mean, we live in a country with 17 million empty housing units and apartments, 17 million, meaning there's enough for everybody who was going to get evicted to move into two or three housing spaces <laughs> that are sitting empty across this country that are largely owned by you know big investment companies companies and such. It is completely ridiculous that there shouldn't be a housing and shelter for every American in a time where we are past scarcity. We live in a world that is beyond scarcity now. If we were to just distribute the resources appropriately and, and meaningfully to everybody in this country. And so I think that the demands need to be expanded. But I do think that this partial win was due to Cori Bush and some others who were genuine in trying to create this, trying to make this happen. And one other point is the amount of back rent owed by people across this country is apparently, according to some estimates, a little above $20 billion, which is less than the extra money that was given to the Pentagon by the Senate's recent decision to throw more money at the Pentagon beyond Biden's request for Pentagon funding. So, you know, they offered them 25 billion more, meaning the extra money that was thrown at the Pentagon on top of their insane budget would have easily covered all of the back rent and you could have everybody paid up and no need for eviction. So, it all is just mind blowing when you look at the larger context. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, regarding the politicians like Chuck Schumer, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's hilarious that Chuck Schumer, who helped make the extension expire, I mean, he could have done so much and he did nothing. He went on vacation, now coming down to speak. But that's typical. You know, when you think back to the nationwide uprising against racism that happened after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, the day before June 1st, when Donald Trump strolled across Lafayette Park to have that photo op taken in front of St. John's Church and had the cops 
like brutally attack and shoot people with rubber bullets and stinger grenades and tear gas them and pepper spray them. The day before all of that happened, which created such a backlash and brought millions of people into the street, the Democratic mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, had declared a curfew along with and in concert with the police agencies. And so Donald Trump was using his support from the Democratic politicians to carry out this even more fierce and vicious repression against the people. But then when that failed, and instead of people being scared and intimidated, they came out in even larger numbers on June 2nd and June 3rd and June 4th, Muriel Bowser painted the streets on 16th (laughs) Street between K Street and H with Black Lives Matter. This was after the curfew and after so much kettling and police violence. But, you know, when you get down to the bottom of all of that, yeah, the politicians always try to camouflage themselves as the real friends of the people when the people are appearing to be strong. So in a way, that's typical. But I think that the lesson, the takeaway here is that if Cori Bush hadn't started the struggle, nothing would have changed. And people don't see this in the media. They might see Chuck Schumer's face. But we know as activists and organizers that all around the country today, I know this for a fact, today, housing rights groups and community groups were beginning to mobilize in their areas in support of Cori Bush and demanding that the Biden administration take action. So I think what Biden has done is anticipating a larger struggle. He's decided to make a partial but important concession. This means we don't know yet how far and how wide the extension of the moratorium will be, but some of the reports are that it might include at least that part of the country, which includes 90% of the existing population. So it, it might save millions of families from being imminently evicted, which is no small deal. But as you're saying, it's not enough. And we're also seeing that if he wants to, and under pressure, Biden has so many options to use executive authority. I quoted earlier on social media something that was shared with me by a friend. He says, the Supreme Court dicta that Biden is hiding behind deals with the CDC's authority, not the president's. A moratorium on evictions and foreclosures during periods of emergency was specifically upheld in the case of Home Loan and Building Association versus Blaise Adele in 1934, where the court held, quote, during periods of emergency, the people's right to survive supersedes the contract clause of the Constitution, meaning the contract between landlords and tenants or homeowners and banks who have mortgages. So this ruling by the Supreme Court in 1934 happened because people were struggling. There was a general strike in Toledo, Ohio, In Minneapolis, Minnesota, and San Francisco, the unemployed councils were on the move. The Socialist Party and the Communist Party were gaining tens of thousands of new members. I mean, there was like revolt happening from below, a renter's revolt. And suddenly the Supreme Court decided, oh, wait, your right to survive supersedes the contract clause in the Constitution. It says so much about what the government could do if it had the will and the desire to do it and why we need to fight. Oh my God, yeah. What, what what could be done if they really wanted to do it is just massive. I did a Redacted Tonight segment on everything Biden could do with executive orders, and the list is truly impressive. 
He could allow every immigrant to stay here safely. He could give everybody health care. He could get rid of all the student loan debt. There's so many things he could do if he really wanted to. But, you know, the Democrats are often very happy to say, oh, it's out of our hands. We can't do it. I mean, that, that's why Chuck Schumer was down there at the protest to go, man, wouldn't it be great if we had some sort of influence? But uh, yeah, I, I stand with you. Even Nancy Pelosi, after this decision was made, tweeted that she salutes Cory Bush for standing up for this or whatever. But of course, it was Nancy Pelosi that largely allowed this to happen. She sent everyone home and she was more than happy to bring everyone back to Congress during vacation to override Trump's veto in December of the NDAA. So she has no problem bringing all of Congress back to session when it has to do with making sure we can create more war. But when it has to do with making sure people are in their homes and not getting kicked out on the street, which is a form of violence and should be prosecuted like violence, she has no interest in bringing Congress back. Yet, once it turned out this action was successful, she's tweeting that she stands with Cori Bush or salutes her or whatever. So, yeah. And, and you, you mentioned earlier that we, meaning the people at, on the steps of Congress and Cori Bush, didn't know what the influence of this would be. And I think that's true of just about every action that ultimately has great influence and great significance. They almost all start small. I was at the first day of Occupy, which was about 100 people in Zuccotti Park, you know, protesting and dancing around and didn't seem like that big a thing. And then it becomes a global, maybe the first global protest movement that lasted for months and months and still has ripples today. So I think, you know, just assuming that something is too small or too impotent on day one, you know, in terms of an action, I don't think you can make that analysis until you you give these flickers a chance to grow into a larger fire. I think that's the big takeaway. That's the ultimate takeaway. Like Rosa Parks wouldn't have known when she didn't give up her seat, refused to give up her seat to a white man in 1955 in Montgomery, that it would ignite a nationwide movement, you know, started small and then grew and grew and grew and turned into a bus boycott that lasted 13 months and led to a mass movement that basically brought an end to legal apartheid. There would be no way of knowing that that little act of resistance would take off. You never really know where you are in the historical continuum until later. And that's why, you know, we want to salute every person who does fight and struggle, no matter how seemingly hopeless it might seem. When the struggle starts, then we can possibly win. But without struggle, we can never win. Lee, 12 years ago, almost to the day, well, it's about two weeks ago, on July 20th, 2009, President Barack Obama came in, had been president for about this long, six months. The Democrats controlled the White House. They controlled the House. They controlled the Senate. And they passed the minimum wage increase, Lee. They passed it and they raised the minimum wage all the way up to $7.25. So 12 years later, the minimum wage is $7.25. And the Democrats today control the presidency. They control the House. They control the Senate, which means the reason the minimum wage didn't go up, it's not that it didn't go up to $15, which was the proposal, and that was over the next five years, not immediately. It didn't go up one penny. The minimum wage today is $7.25, the federally mandated minimum wage, which is 40% lower than it was in 1968 when 
Martin Luther King Jr. organized the Poor People's Campaign to occupy Washington, D.C. to overcome poverty. So the federal minimum wage under a situation where the Democrats control all branches of the existing government, I mean, not the Supreme Court, but the two chambers of Congress and the White House, it's the same as it was in 2009. That means it's been year after year after year, a massive wage cut for low-wage workers, and we're talking about 15 million people. Yeah, and if the minimum wage had kept up with what it was in 1968 in terms of buying power and income distribution, it would be well over $20 now, maybe closer to $25 an hour. And the minimum wage is not a feasible way to live anymore. It doesn't allow people to have life anymore. A new study came out showing that in 93% of counties in the United States, you cannot afford a standard one-bedroom apartment with minimum wage. 93% of counties in America, you can't basically survive with minimum wage. And so in my opinion, and I think the opinion of many, that means 93% of the United States is basically a failed state. It's, it's a failed living standard in the richest, one of the richest countries in the world. So it's insane that our Congress people aren't dealing with this. They aren't changing it. Like you said, they have the power. The Democrats have both houses and the presidency. There's no doubt that they could heavily increase the minimum wage and be like other countries in this world. You know, I mean, in Denmark, when you account for paid time off and everything and other benefits, the opening day that a guy walks into a McDonald's and says, I want to sweep the floors, he's making close to $25 an hour. And that's basically the least you would make as an employee in Denmark. And you're telling me the United States can't manage this as we dump trillions of dollars into the catastrophic F-35 fighter jet? It's all laughable. And again, Lee, just remind the audience, you said how much would be necessary to cover unpaid rent, the people who are behind. What was the number? A little over $20 billion. $20 billion. In the American budget, that's nothing. The military budget is officially about $760 billion. But when you include the monies in the Department of Energy and the other places where you know the military expenditures are basically hidden, the cost is about $1 trillion each year. And the last time the U.S. was invaded was the War of 1812. So obviously, this military budget is not for, quote, defense. <laughs> No, of course not. Although I will, uh, you got to give Biden a lot of credit. Just the other day, he declared an end to combat operations in Iraq, which is very exciting, considering it is the at least the fifth time we've declared the end of combat operations in Iraq. Obama declared it in 2010. He declared it again in 2011. George W. Bush, of course, had his famous mission accomplished, where he declared the end of combat operations in Iraq. So, you know, that shows that we can end a war and that doesn't actually end the war. It, it just, every time we end a war, it seems to be the beginning of just more killing, more bombing, more destruction of other countries, which we need to dump a trillion dollars a year into. The title of Chris Hedges' famous book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. The, America acts like we would cease to exist if we actually stopped bombing people for 30 seconds. Indeed. I mean, it's really, really something. I, you know, I was in Iraq multiple times in the 1990s, including right before the first Gulf War. 
But the last time I was there was right before the 2003 invasion. I was with Ramsey Clark and some other folks, and we were going to all the places that the U.S. was bombing. And by the way, the U.S. was bombing Iraq every day, every day starting in December 1998, December 12th, 1998, Operation Desert Fox. I was actually in Iraq when they started bombing. And every day, all the way up until March 19th, 2003. So for five years, the U.S. bombed that country every day, first under Clinton, then under George W. Bush. But the last time I went, you know, the, the sanctions on Iraq had started to sort of fray. Syria was starting to trade with Iraq. Lebanon was starting to trade. Some of the neighboring countries were becoming less afraid of the American sanctions regime. And so when I went into the pharmacy for the first time, again, I had been going there for like 12 years. For the first time, there was actually medicine in the pharmacies. And again, this was a country that had universal health care before the first Gulf War. And by most standards of emerging countries was a pretty affluent country. Now, one of the things when I talked to, I interviewed some people in the pharmacy and I said, oh, there's medicine. And they just looked at me kind of bitterly and said, why are you doing this? Meaning, why is your country doing this? Why are we being bombed every day? Why do you want to make sure that we don't have medicine? I mean, why? I mean, it must be so perplexing to the people in Iraq or in Afghanistan why the U.S. is constantly bombing them. Yeah, the root cause is really one that can't be talked about. It simply has to do with, I mean, sure, there's some nice resources to grab here and there, but that's not the real reason. The The real reason is to make sure there aren't strong countries in the Middle East, although now we're moving on to other areas of the world like Africa, that can challenge us that, and Israel, that can be of any type of countermeasure, counterforce to the American empire. And, you know, tied in with that is they're outside of our central banking. Pretty much every one that we've attacked or invaded, like Libya, Iraq, Syria, they've all dropped the U.S. dollar, the petrodollar. They're outside of our central banking arm, which means we don't have that control over them either. And so the end goal is really to create kind of failed states where we can either put in our puppet government or at least ensure that they aren't a advanced, civilized and powerful nation. But of course, you know, that can never be talked about on your mainstream media or even a lot of independent media. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one thing that since we're talking about Biden and Trump, Trump had also been arguing that the U.S. should leave Iraq or leave Afghanistan. He tried a couple of times to make a deal and and he was basically shut down by the Pentagon. I mean, one thing is it would represent and will represent a shift if the U.S. military actually leaves these countries. Remember, after Qasem Soleimani was you know, criminally executed by the Trump administration in the Pentagon when he arrived at Baghdad's airport in early January 2019 for peace talks with the Iraqi government. He was killed by a U.S. drone. The Iraqi government, the parliament, voted unanimously, unanimously that the U.S. must leave their country, to which Trump in the Pentagon said, mm, no, we're not leaving. So now Biden is saying, like Obama had said in 2009, <laughs> we're going to leave. In one way, it does signify that the U.S. has been defeated. I mean, when you fight in these countries for 20 years, 
And other countries like China, for instance, or Iran have a greater influence than the United States or U.S. imperialism does. It signifies that there's been a setback, that the military calculations were unmet and they were wrong. And we don't know what will happen because the U.S., you know, arrogates to itself the right to bomb any country, whether it's, quote, occupying them or not. And that certainly goes true for Afghanistan and Iraq. But it does, I think, represent something of a geostrategic shift, Lee. And one of the reasons I think the Biden administration and at least some parts of the Pentagon want to formally end the engagement in Iraq and Afghanistan is they want to focus on war with China. They don't want to be bogged down as much. They want to really focus on China. And here you're talking about a country that is 1.4 or 1.5 billion people. One out of every five humans is Chinese. It's a growing military force. It's obviously an integrated economy. And the U.S. government, without any real debate, has adopted a consensus that China is an existential enemy. Blinken and other U.S. government officials have said, now the period of engagement with China is over. And again, there hasn't been any debate about the U.S. preparing for World War III. It's kind of like, okay, yeah, Democrats, liberals, Republicans, conservatives, all of the different political entities within the establishment constellation, they're all like, yeah, let's go to war with China. Yeah, the ramp up for, you know, the new Cold War, although it puts us on the footing for a a hot war or nuclear Armageddon or something, has been just kind of jaw dropping. And to watch the kind of 180 switch where the so-called left wing media, but they're really not left wing, but they used to be the slight anemic voice of anti-war. When Bush was in office, there would be some coverage here and there on, you know, maybe this isn't the best idea or things like that. Although they also purged their biggest anti-war voices as well. But there was some slight, you know, coverage like that. Whereas now you have this shift where, you know, it is MSNBC and CNN and everything that are the biggest war cheerleaders out there. They can do no coverage that doesn't create the great China menace in people's heads and the great Russian menace. And they're really pushing, you know, the whole world to the brink of some sort of nuclear exchange that could easily lead to nuclear Armageddon. And it's kind of, you know, mind blowing to see the switch happen that quickly, to see it change so drastically so that you have all these frothing at the mouth, anti-Russia, anti-China, let's just go to war, people on your mainstream media, and of course, the politicians as well, just 24-7. The sad thing is, you know, propaganda works. So, They continue to act as if Russiagate was anything at all, as it's all collapsed. They continue to act as if China is not a bubbling country of billions of diverse people. You know, it is one thing. It is this one dark menace rather than any sort of group of human beings that are individuals in their own right. And it is this toxic nationality that pushes us towards war. Because the American empire seems to have the view, which is not surprising, I guess, that if we aren't owning the globe, then all is lost. 
there is no sentiment that we could be on some sort of equal footing with other countries and work in cooperation and coordination with them, when in fact, that is exactly what we need right now. We are facing a climate extinction event. And so the only way to deal with that is going to be large-scale cooperation amongst humanity. And instead, you have just endless, you know, minute by minute, let's hate every country that is our quote-unquote adversary without any, and they don't even give your average American any real reason that these people should be their adversaries. It's just, let's fear them, you know, Putin's under your bed right now kind of stuff. Indeed. Biden's anti-China moves in the economic realm are actually more aggressive than Trump. Even when he was passing his industrial quarter trillion dollar industrial policy bill, it was all based on how to defeat China internationally. Biden launched this Buy American campaign that eliminates foreign companies out of extremely you know, lucrative U.S. government procurement markets. It's work to block Chinese acquisitions and investments in the U.S. It's moved to keep Chinese students and researchers out of the country. And on June 17th, Biden signed an executive order banning American firms from investing in Chinese companies linked to the military or to surveillance technology. Now, if you use that criteria for the U.S., almost every major company is linked to the American military or surveillance technology. I I would guess every one of them, in fact. So this is the weird part of what the U.S. imperialist (laughs) establishment, Democrat and Republican, are both doing because decoupling from China right now, like we want to decouple from China, we want to prepare for World War III with China. There's a fundamental difference between this and what the U.S. did with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was not integrated into the world economy. There were like two world economies. There was the socialist camp world economy that had the Soviet Union and earlier China, even though they then left. And it had Eastern Europe and Cuba and North Vietnam and North Korea. So they had their own sort of internal globalization, their internal world economy, because the U.S. made it illegal to sell even a single computer to the Soviet Union. They were completely shut off. And so as a result, you could have sort of a Cold War architecture where these two economies, two military forces could come to agreements about how to have arms control, for instance. But here, the U.S., you know, speeding towards confrontation with China, where China is completely integrated into the world economy, meaning also into the U.S. economy, there's no plan for this. There's no way to have an actual equilibrium. In my mind, this is more dangerous because it will be an unmanaged rivalry similar to what happened before World War I and World War II than the Cold War, which was a managed rivalry, at least after a certain number of years. And again, there's no sense of alarm about this within the mainstream media about what the possible consequences are. Yeah, the consequences are grave, and it puts us down a path that is very dangerous. And we're kind of lucky that China has not decided to be as belligerent as the United States, that China is not invading and bombing countries around the globe In that respect, they're the adults in the room, but the U.S. is doing everything it can to try and crush these countries, which tends to push them towards war if they become desperate. But yeah, you look at Biden versus Trump and it's equal or harsher policies 
on China, on Russia, on Cuba, on Venezuela, on Iran. And yet people acted like Trump was this war hawk maniac, which he was, but Biden was supposed to be the antidote if you watched your mainstream media. Biden was supposed to be the opposite of that. Vote for Biden because he's not what Trump is. And instead, we're getting a more belligerent policy. Instead, the same war hawks, the same serial murderers are in charge of this system, the same style of sociopaths. And it really is disgusting to watch that there is no shift in foreign policy, if not a shift even farther to the right. So how is it that people can argue these are two separate parties? I mean, they're the same party with slight differences on, you know, some domestic policy. And the moments, you know, Trump was a murderous president. He dropped 40,000 bombs a year, or his Pentagon did while he was president. Obama's final year, 26,000 were dropped. So these are incredibly murderous regimes, but the few times that our, both the politicians in Congress and our mainstream media came out against Trump and his foreign policy were usually the times where he, weirdly, for his own reasons, was trying to create peace, like with North Korea, like pulling troops out of Afghanistan and out of Germany, pulling troops out of Syria. Those were the times where you really saw our true system stand up and say, this cannot happen. Trump is out of line. Trump is not being presidential. He is destroying America. Those were the real times you saw them stand up to him. It was not when he was bombing or killing people around the globe, because that's just standard operating procedure now. Yeah. And as we start to wind down, I remember vividly when Trump bombed Syria while he was having dessert with Xi Jinping at Mar-a-Lago early in his administration, the so-called liberal media, mm -hmm. again, the word liberal no longer has any meaning. You know, they were like, now President Trump is acting presidential. And I was like, yeah, now that he's dipping his hands in the blood of people in other country, all sectors of the U.S. establishment can recognize that as really being, quote, presidential, which shows the real function of the chief executive in this capitalist imperialist system. And Lee, you know, when you think about Cuba, for instance, Obama, and Biden was Obama's vice president, opened up to Cuba. They didn't normalize, but they opened up embassies in Havana in the United States. That was a moment of great hope and promise. After 54 years of no relations, they were going to have normal relations. Now you have Joe Biden refusing to lift the 243 coercive measures that Trump imposed on Cuba, which is precisely the thing that has created additional hardships and shortages in Cuba. And now he's meeting with Cuban Americans from Miami, all of whom have been you know, historically funded by the NED or the CIA or the USAID in the White House and like, no, I'm not going to lift any more sanctions on Cuba. We're going to go for it. It's going to be regime change. And the same thing in Venezuela, recognizing and embracing, loving Juan Guaido, who's nothing, I mean, literally nothing inside of Venezuela's political system and seizing Venezuela's assets. And again, the people who you know were pillaring Trump for what he was doing to Cuba and Venezuela, almost mute or silent. I mean, it really speaks to the need for an independent, radical, socialist, truly anti-war, truly anti-imperialist movement of people because tens of millions of people 
agree with our position, the position that you're talking about, the position that I'm expressing. But unless we weld these people into a mass movement, a passive opposition to all of this is meaningless. There has to be change from below. Anyway, we'll give you the final word. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there does need to be change from below. And these economic sanctions are really economic war on these countries. People have to realize they have equal or greater impact often than our bombing in terms of number of people killed. Tens of thousands have been killed in Venezuela thanks to our withholding of you know money and medical devices and everything else. And in Cuba, people are really suffering because we have cut off their ability to fund their country. And so people should not act like economic sanctions are just a soft and friendly way of pushing a country in a certain direction. It is a killing device. It is a tool of death and misery. And Biden has only amped it up against Cuba, Venezuela, Iran, Syria. You know, the number of people dying from our economic war against Syria is really not talked about in our mainstream media. You only hear about the bombing. So, yeah, these things are equally repulsive, equally sociopathic, and we need a large-scale movement. We need people to stand up. We need people to, you know, we've talked about a lot on this episode, but we need people to stand up not just for those dying overseas, but, you know, we talked about how much people are suffering in America. So, really, the victims of this regime and the last regime and the one before that are both international and within our own borders. It is a tiny number of human beings, a tiny oligarchy that is waging war against the poor, the middle class, people in various countries around the world, and they have to be kicked out of power. And in order to do that, you have to really throw out capitalism. Lee Camp is a writer, he's a comedian, activist, journalist, and the host of the television show Redacted Tonight, which you can see on RT America. His latest book is called Bullet Points and Punchlines, the most important commentary ever written on the epic American tragic comedy. And you can find it and more of his work at LeeCamp.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.